Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 84 of the show, and it is a fantastic episode. Lots of information to get into. We have a major championship to recap on the PGA Tour. Uh, Standings update in Major League Baseball as we've officially reached the All-Star break. So we'll get you caught up on how those standings look. And, uh, of course, a recap of the Home Run Derby and the All-Star game itself. And uh, plenty of other information to get into and around the island, uh, specifically with the National Hockey League and the free agent frenzy that we've seen thus far. So we'll go ahead and get started, jump right into it, and we'll start on the PGA Tour. Uh, This past weekend uh, was the Open Championship. That was at St. Andrews Golf Links in St. Andrews, Scotland, par 72. Distance was 7,313 yards. All right, this was the uh, fourth major championship of the season, which is the last major championship to be played. There's only four. It was also the 150th edition of the Open Championship. The Open uh, is the original major. It was the very first one to be played. This was actually the 30th Open Championship to be played at St. Andrews, which, of course, is the most of any course that is in the Open Championship rotation. So it's nicknamed the home of golf. Uh, If you watch the broadcast, you heard about that. They kept referring to it as the home of golf. That's where golf was first played uh, several hundred years ago. And when you think of Lynx-style golf, uh, St. Andrews is certainly one of the first courses to come to mind. Uh, Lynx courses are very long, very wide, very undulating, uh, not a whole lot of flat parts. And if you watched uh, any part of this broadcast, you got to see that. Uh, The greens on this thing, very interesting layout for St. Andrews. They have seven joint greens, combined greens, all right? Uh, The second was matched up with the 16th. The third hole was matched up with the uh, 15th, 4th hole with the 14th hole, 5th hole with the 13th hole, uh, the 6th hole was paired up with the 12th hole, the 7th hole was paired up with the 11th hole. Now you'll notice all of those add up to 18, just kind of uh, interesting note there, but the greens were massive. We're talking uh, the average size of the green was uh, about 22,000 square feet or so. Now, there was two pins on all those greens, so, of course, they had different flag colors, so they knew which ones to shoot at, but uh, it was uh, quite the scene there. Um, you, you know, you could, these greens, uh, not very flat at all. In fact, uh, I think the only, there was only one green that was mildly flat. I want to say it was the eighth hole, uh, but um Certainly very undulating on the greens. Um, you had to watch it to see it. But uh, weather for Lynx-style golf is usually overcast. It's usually a little cooler, and there's usually some precipitation. But uh, this week, uh, it was pretty pretty good weather. Did not have any 
in in round uh, precipitation. I think all the precipitation happened uh, overnight, but um, the wind was certainly a factor. Uh, it changed directions a couple times and was sitting uh, at any given time between uh, five to twenty five miles an hour. Uh, it kind of changed. It usually, uh, I think, it sat mainly. Uh, in that five to ten mile an hour range, so it wasn't absurd, but certainly a lot of wind to deal with. Uh, it was very good weather this past weekend in Scotland, uh, which uh, is usually not something we see. It did have a lot of sunshine as well, which again is pretty rare uh, for the Open Championship. But I talked about this last week. The Open Championship is absolutely my favorite golf tournament of the year. I love everything about the Open. Um, here in the states, you know we're. Uh, I live in the central time zone for the United States, so uh, I am six hours behind uh, the um, British standard time uh, that they use in Scotland. And so the tee times for the first two rounds here in the central time zone of the U.S. Uh, started at 12.35 a.m. Uh, I did not stay up and watch the opening tees, tee shots, tee times, but I did wake up at 5 and 6 a.m. locally here to catch the uh, uh, late morning, afternoon tea times uh, over there so I could stay up and watch uh, six or seven hours of golf. So I talked about last week how I just love doing There's something about this tournament where you can either stay up late and watch it or uh, go to, uh, wake up early and watch it. And I chose to wake up early, like I said, 5, 6 a.m., uh, getting up to watch golf uh, for seven consecutive hours. Uh, my wife thought I was crazy, but... Um, it's my favorite tournament of the year, and I absolutely enjoy doing it. Uh, maybe you tuned in to some of it, but um, yeah, it, it was certainly fantastic, and I, I look forward to doing it again next year. Uh, the field you know, was a major championship, so the field was stacked. All the top-ranked players in the world uh, were out in this thing. A lot of those guys had played the week before at the Genesis Scottish Open, so they were ready uh, for the Lynx-style golf, although those two courses are, are certainly different. Um, rookie Sahith Thigala replaced uh, Daniel Berger, who had to withdraw from a back injury, and uh, Thigala showed out. It was his first ever time playing St. Andrews, first ever time in the Open Championship, and he played really well. Uh, Tiger Woods also made an appearance. Uh, he did not play well. Uh, remember, he played in the Masters uh, and played the first three rounds of the PGA Championship before withdrawing from that due to his leg hurting. He made the cut in both of those events. Did not play in the U.S. Open. Uh, last month, and uh, he actually ended up missing the cut uh, after a horrendous two rounds of golf uh, here at the Open. So he gave it a shot, but just uh, was not, um, you know, looking good. And now I'm going to stop it. Speaking of Tiger Woods, all right, um, you know, he, he played pretty well the first round at the Masters uh, PGA Championship. He made the cut. You could tell his leg was bothering him, but we're three months removed from his last uh, competitive event there at the PGA Championship where, you know, he's had time to rest and he's, he's um, you know, had time to heal, basically. Um, and so I'm not buying that his leg is, you know, people keep giving him an excuse because, oh, his leg is this. He's he's 40-something years old, right? He's in his in his 40s. He's not the young guy he's, he once was uh, in his prime. And he just played like shit. Let's just call it what it is. Tiger Woods did not play well this weekend at the Open, uh, and he just missed the cut. He couldn't putt worth a damn, 
and he just it, it was not a good two days of golf for Tiger Woods. It doesn't matter leg injury or not. I'm just I'm tired of people saying, "Oh, his leg, he'll be back." No, he he's not. Um, he's not. He can still hit the ball well off the tee. I think he had the longest drive of the day on Friday's round. I think he hit the ball like 415 yards off the tee, so he can still drive it. But uh, his putting was absolutely atrocious. And uh, let's not keep making excuses for Tiger Woods. He's old, and he's just not as competitive as a lot of these younger guys that can smoke the ball and can hit their irons and putt well. So uh, I'm not not on the Tiger Woods uh, bandwagon. It's it's cool to see him win. It's cool to see him win the Masters a couple years ago um, before his car wreck. But at this point, he's you know Father Time is is winning that battle. But Coming into the Open, you know, the last five major champions were all in their 20s. And, um, you know, we were looking to see who, who would win this week. Uh, Rory McIlroy, Will Zalatoris are the only two golfers to finish inside the top 10 in each of the first three majors. Um, they both played. Uh, Rory played exceptional this week. Uh, Zalatoris didn't play well to start, but he ended up finishing fairly strong. Um, and then Scotty Scheffler, you know, he was looking to become the first golfer since Tiger Woods in 05 to win both the Masters and the Open at St. Andrews. So uh, several storylines coming into this thing. First round, Cameron Young got out to an amazing start, shot an 8-under bogey-free round of 64, which was the lowest opening score by a, a player ever uh, making their Open Championship debut. He also hit all 18 greens in regulation. He's only a 10th player to do that. Uh, at St. Andrews. All right, so pretty impressive stuff there. We also, in round one, had the longest televised putt ever hold. Uh, Ian Poulter, on the, the ninth hole, made a 163-foot putt. Uh, just absolutely unbelievable to watch. He couldn't even believe it went in. Uh, I mean, that's, that is a hell of a putt. So, uh, round two, it was a battle of the Camerons. All right, Cameron Young, obviously with his 64 in round one. Uh, Cameron Smith came out in round two, and he shot a bogey-free round of 64, just like Cam Young did. And uh, that had Cam Smith at 13-under after round two, which was the lowest ever 36-hole score to par in an Open championship. And, you know, I mentioned this was the 30th tournament at St. Andrews. It was the... Uh, uh, second lowest 36-hole score to par in major championship history, okay? So um, lowest 36-hole score to par in an open championship at St. Andrews, uh, and then second lowest 36-hole score to par in a major in history out of all the majors, all right? And the only other person that had a lower score was Jordan Spieth in 2015 at the Masters, who was 14 under uh, after round two, and he went on to win. So kind of a little bit of foreshadowing there. Um, a big reason uh, Cam Smith played that well in round two was because of his putting. He made 253 feet of putts in round two alone, which uh, was was in incredible. Uh, 83 players made the cut after round two, which was the most we've seen in an Open Championship since 2013. Uh, round three, we kind of had a little um, historical or crazy event. Shane Lowry, uh, the 2019 Open Championship winner, he made back-to-back hole-out eagles in consecutive holes. On the uh, the ninth hole, he chipped in from just off the green. And then from about 50 yards out on hole 10, he uh, he sank that shot. And uh, that was pretty cool to watch, back-to-back -back eagles. You don't really see that very often. 
And then Victor Hovland in round three, he played his ass off. He was the only player in the field in round three to shoot bogey free. Uh, he shot a six under 66. All right. So we get to round four. Um, Rory McElroy had, uh, he was tied with Victor Hovland at 16 under par heading into round four. Uh, Cameron Smith and Cameron Young were both four shots back at 12 under par. All right, so pretty comfortable lead there for McElroy and Hovland. Uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, Cameron Smith got red hot with the putter, just like he did in round two. Uh, Cam Smith ended up birdieing five straight holes, uh, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. He birdied to take the lead and uh, ended up making another birdie after that. Um, now, interesting fact about Cam Smith, he birdied holes 10 through 13 at the Players' Championship earlier this year in the final round to win that tournament as well. Well, that's that's exactly what happened. He birdied 10 through 14 this week at the Open. Um, a tremendous par save on 17. Uh, if He had to putt uh, from, from off the green, as they very often did this week, and um, ended up rolling it up there for his third shot and uh, left it uh, probably, you know, 8 to 10 feet from the cup and saved an incredible par on, on the 17th, which probably won him the tournament. Then he finished off fantastic uh, birdie on 18 as well um, to capture the Open Championship. So Cameron Smith is your champion golfer of the year with a score of 20 under par. He had two rounds of 64, second round and fourth round, now, I mentioned his incredible putting uh, throughout the tournament and that fourth round when he had those five consecutive birdies. Uh, Cameron Smith only needed 10 putts on the back nine holes to come uh, to come in with a 30. He had a score of 30 on the back nine on Sunday's round, which is just simply incredible. I mean, that's, that's one putt per hole, right? Um, you just do not see that in a major championship. You do not see that at St. Andrews. So incredible putting from Cameron Smith made him champion golfer of the year. It was his sixth career victory on tour, third this season, and it was his first major championship. He uh, became the first Australian player to win the Open in 28 years, and he's only the fifth golfer ever to win both the Players' Championship and a major in the same season. He's the second golfer ever to win both the Players' Championship and the Open Championship in the same year. The only other player that did that was Jack Nicholas back in 1978, and he also won his Open Championship at St. Andrews. So very interesting uh, fact there. Uh, but Cameron Smith's final score of 20 under par tied the most under par in any major championship in PGA Tour history. Okay, so... Um, he, he just shot lights out all weekend. Second place was Cameron Young at 19 under par. All right, so he, he opened with that 64. He actually closed with a uh, 7 under 65 on Sunday. I think he made 8 or 9 birdies on Sunday. Uh, played terrific. He eagled the par 4 18th hole to get him up to 19 under uh, before Cameron Smith made his birdie putt from about 3 feet uh, to get to 20 under. So it looked like there for a minute that if Cameron Smith missed that three-foot putt, we were going to have a playoff hole uh, between the two Camerons. But Cameron Smith made his putt to go to 20 under, giving him the win. Cameron Young finished at 19 under. Solo third place was Rory McIlroy at 18 under. Now I mentioned he came into Sunday's round with a uh, 
a four-shot lead. He was tied with Victor Hovland, all right, uh, at 16 under par. Had a four-shot lead on the Camerons. And if you'd have told Rory McIlroy that Victor Hovland would shoot two over par on Sunday, that he Rory himself would shoot two under par uh, on Sunday, I think Rory would have felt pretty comfortable with a six-shot lead, right? Um, if you knew he was going to shoot two under, Hovland would shoot two over, and the Camerons, he had a six-shot lead at the Cameron uh, on the Camerons at that point. I think Rory would f- would feel pretty comfortable, uh, and he normally you would, but uh, both the Camerons decided to play their ass off. Cameron Smith was uh, mentioned five birdies in a row to start his back nine. Uh, you just can't uh, take that into account. So uh, you're not banking on somebody that's four shots back shooting an eight under. Uh, in the final round, bogey-free with five birdies in a row. So Cameron Smith went out and stole that claret jug uh, from Rory. But, um, yeah, Rory was solo third. Uh, Again, comes up short at the Open. Hasn't won a major since 2014. So we'll see uh, if that uh, trend continues as we move forward uh, in next year's major championships. But fourth place, there was a tie. Uh, Victor Hovland tied uh, Tommy Fleetwood at 14 under par. Both of those guys uh, played well throughout the weekend. Uh, Fleetwood shot five under on Sunday to kind of get himself up there, whereas I mentioned Hovland was two over on Sunday to kind of fall back. Uh, It was pretty clear Hovland just couldn't putt. Uh, Didn't have the same touch that he did uh, on Saturday. Uh, Brian Harmon and Dustin Johnson tied for sixth at 13 under par. And then uh, three-way tie for eighth, Bryson DeChambeau, Jordan Spieth, and Patrick Cantlay. Uh, DeChambeau shot... uh, a six under 66 on Sunday to to catapult himself up. And then Jordan Spieth played really well uh, pretty much all weekend. Uh, He missed, missed a few putts that he'd like back, uh, but I don't know that would have got him to 20 under par. But again, another top 10 finish for Spieth at the open. That dude uh, has the lowest score to par uh, of any player on tour uh, at the open championship since 2015. Of course he won it in 2017, but um, Spieth can play the, the link style golf for whatever reason. Uh, and then Patrick Cantlay, uh, he shot four under 68 on Sunday to get into that top 10. So, uh, all in all, like I said, terrific weekend of golf. Uh, my favorite tournament. I enjoyed watching pretty much every minute that I could. Uh, and I watched a majority of this thing and that uh, was very, very cool to watch. Uh, the history being the 150th open championship at St. Andrews, uh, it was just great viewing, super competitive golf. The leaderboard was packed with top-ranked players all throughout the weekend, and uh, it was just some high-level stuff. Uh, Cameron Smith moved up to number two in the official world golf rankings with that victory, so uh, very, very impressive stuff there for Cameron Smith. Uh, but this weekend's tournament, uh, it's a smaller one, obviously. It's the 3M Open. That is at TPC Twin Cities in Blaine, Minnesota. It's a par 71. Distance is 7,431 yards. All right. Uh, This course itself uh, is built on a former sod farm. All right. So it utilizes its natural rolling terrain uh, to be very undulating, uh, something that some of these guys are used to from playing last week. A lot of water on this course as well. So that'll come into play. Uh, One of the signature holes on this thing is the... uh, Par 4 7th hole. Uh, It's nicknamed Tom's Thumb after Tom Lehman, who helped design the course. Uh, It's kind of a risk reward uh, hole. You know, if you go for it, uh, you can end up getting into some some stuff, you know, water or whatever. 
Um, but if you, if you make it, uh, you know, you're looking at a, a solid Eagle chance, um, you know, should see a lot of birdies on that hole. Uh, there are only three events left in the PGA Tours regular season. So the FedEx Cup points coming down the stretch here are, are at a premium, all right? This is a tournament that's the week after a major championship, especially a major championship that was, uh, you know, uh, across the pond, as they say, in Scotland. So uh, we don't have a lot of big names in this thing. We do have six previous major champions that are in the field, uh, along, you know, to include some recognizable names such as uh, Hideki Matsuyama, Tony Finau, Sung J M, Jason Day, uh, Ricky Fowler, and then a couple of exciting young rookies in Davis Riley and uh, Sahith Tagala, who, of course, played last week at the Open. We also have a former pro athlete playing in this thing, Marty Fish, former pro tennis player. He's from Minnesota, right outside uh, St. Paul, you know, which is where this, this course is at. Um, he received a PGA Tour exemption to play. Um, he was the former number seven ranked tennis player in the world. He won a silver medal uh, in tennis in the 2004 Summer Olympics. So uh, Marty Fish, you know, is the latest athlete to accept a PGA Tour exemption. Um, we've seen Tony Romo, Mark Mulder, and Steph Curry uh, also do that uh, on the, the PGA Tour, Corn Ferry Tour. So uh, pretty cool stuff there for Marty Fish. All of those guys that I just mentioned actually just played in the uh, celebrity uh, tournament at Lake Tahoe a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that was pretty cool to watch. Those are all very good golfers, very good amateur golfers. So <clears throat> we'll see how Marty Fish does. Uh, it's the only golf event on this week. Um, you know, again, there's there's enough there's enough uh, bigger names and good players in there to to make it worthwhile if you want to watch, but. Uh, last few PGA Tour events here as we kind of wind down that season uh, and get into the FedEx Cup playoffs. So uh, there'll be some FedEx Cup points on the line. Should should be a little drama there to see uh, who who moves up and who slides down. And you know only the top 150 in the FedEx Cup standings, uh, I think top 150, uh, move on um, to the FedEx Cup playoffs. So. Uh, Certainly, there'll be some uh, some excitement there this week, and I know I'll be tuned into that. But we'll move over to Major League Baseball, do a standings update here in the MLB. We have officially reached the All-Star break. I know last week uh, we discussed that the All-Star break was quickly approaching, but um, the teams had about five, six games left uh, before the official All-Star break. And as I record this episode, we are in the middle of the All-Star break, so... These standings updates uh, are current as of the break. Now, the break is Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of this week. Uh, there's some games. I think the first games resume this week, Thursday, July 21st. So uh, there's only a few games that night. So um, these standings updates, uh, this is as current as it gets right now through the All-Star break. We'll start off in the National League, the NL East, the New York Mets, uh, are the leaders there at 58 and 35. Um, Pete Alonso and Francisco Lindor both have been playing really well. Uh, that's the two best uh, hitters on that team. They're the first pair of Mets teammates uh, with 60 or more RBIs before the All-Star break since David Wright and Carlos Beltran back in 2008. Both of those guys were All-Stars. <clears throat> uh, only Alonso, I believe, made the All-Star uh, game uh, this year, at least the home run derby. But um, so they've been hitting well. They have a the Mets have a two and a half game lead on the Atlanta Braves, who are fifty six and thirty eight. Now the Braves, 
Uh, third baseman Austin Riley, he became the first Braves player to hit more than 25 home runs before the All-Star break since 2005 when Andrew Jones did it. And that year, uh, Andrew Jones actually went on to break the single-season franchise record for the Braves for homers in a season with 51. So I can certainly see Riley breaking that record. Um, he's just been mashing the ball, especially this last week. Uh, the Braves, as a team, have hit uh, about 150 home runs this year so far in the first half of the year, which is the most uh, home runs any Braves team has hit before the All-Star break in team history. So um, they've been smashing the baseball, and I would look for that to continue. <clears throat> Remember, uh, before the Braves got this division lead down to two and a half, uh, hadn't been any closer than that since April 30th. So it had been a while since this division was this close, but the Braves look like they're uh, turning on the Jets. You know, and they are the, the reigning World Series champions, so uh, watch out for them the second half of the season. The Philadelphia Phillies are third in the NL East at 49 and 43. They're eight and a half games back of the Mets. Uh, I think at best they're looking at possibly a wild card uh, spot this year, uh, but I do not see them overtaking the Mets or the Braves at this point. The Miami Marlins are 43 and 48. And the Washington Nationals are 31 and 63. And that just happens to be the very worst record in Major League Baseball at the All Star break. So the, the Nationals are technically the worst uh, team in the league. And uh, they're in a whole lot of trouble. Um, we'll talk about that with regards to their, their All Star player, Juan Soto. We'll talk about that in Around the Island. Uh, but over in the National League Central, the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, they're 50-43. and 43. They have uh, only a half-game lead on the St. Louis Cardinals, who are 50-44. and 44. All right, so um, uh, Brewers came into the All-Star break losing three straight. Uh, Cardinals won their last couple of games coming into the break. So uh, that division, I've mentioned this the last few episodes, it's going to come down to the Brewers or the Cardinals. Whichever one wins the division, the other will certainly be a wild-card team in the National League. So... Uh, both of those, those two teams are going to flip-flop places probably several more times before the season's over. The Pittsburgh Pirates are 39-54. and 54. They're 11 games back of the Brewers, uh, but they've, they've actually played probably uh, above average this year from what they're used to, uh, used to doing. Uh, the Chicago Cubs are fourth in the NL Central at 35-57. and 57. They've only won once in their last 10 games heading into the All-Star break, so very... Very bad play by the Chicago Cubs at the moment. Uh, Cincinnati Reds, 34-57. and 57. Um, <clears throat> They had actually won six of their last ten games before the All-Star break, but uh, the Reds, yeah, they're, they're, you know, there's a chance the Reds might not be uh, the worst team uh, in, in their division at the end of the year. Uh, over in the National League West, the Los Angeles Dodgers. Okay, this division has been... Um, pretty surprising. It's It's been close, then it's been not close, then it's been close, and now it is not close again. It is actually uh, the second biggest division lead at the moment. The Los Angeles Dodgers are 60 and 30, okay, uh, at the All-Star break. Uh, they came into the All-Star break uh, winning nine of their last 10, including four in a row. So they, they're playing really well. I think they have six All-Stars. Of course, the All-Star game is at Dodger Stadium. Uh, so, uh, Dodgers have a 10-game lead on the San Diego Padres, who are 52-42. and 42. Uh, I don't know if the Padres are good enough to make up 10 games. 
uh, over this final stretch of the season here, uh, considering most of the teams have played about 90 to 94 games as it sits at the All-Star break. So uh, I don't know if the Padres are going to overtake the Dodgers for the division, but certainly uh, the Padres will be a wild card team. And then San Francisco Giants, they're 48 and 43. They're 12 and a half games back of the Dodgers, uh, but they came in to the All-Star break winning three in a row, seven out of their last 10. So they're, they're also playing well at the moment. Uh, I can see all three of those teams being in the playoff picture, uh, be it a division winner or a wild card team. Colorado Rockies are 43 and 50. And the Arizona Diamondbacks are 40 and 52. So neither of those teams will be uh, in the playoff mix this year. Doesn't appear. Uh, but over in the American League, the biggest division lead in baseball at the All-Star break is the American League East. The New York Yankees are 64 and 28. Uh, they have a 13-game lead on the Tampa Bay Rays, who are 51 and 41. Okay. Um, the Rays, uh, they're, you know. They just got Brandon Lau back, and uh, he went six for eight in his first two games, so it looks like he's completely healthy and ready to go. Might have a big second half of the year. The Toronto Blue Jays are third in the AL East at 50-43. and 43. They're 14 and a half games back of the Yankees. They won their last three games before the All-Star break, and uh, the Blue Jays look for real. I think they have five All-Stars, and um, <clears throat> you know they're certainly going to be a wild-card team, I think. Uh, when it when it's all said and done, they're certainly not catching the Yankees, but uh, they will be in the playoffs. The Boston Red Sox are forty eight and forty five. Uh, they only won three times in their last ten games before the break. They're sixteen and a half games back of the Yankees, uh, but I can see the Red Sox certainly making the playoffs as a wild card team as well. Uh, that's that's four potential playoff teams out of uh, the AL East, which would be um, rather historic. And then the last team uh, in the American League East is the Baltimore Orioles, and their record is 46-46. and 46. Uh, They came into this thing, they're, I mean, they're 18 games back of the Yankees, but they're playing, they're at 500 at the All-Star break, which is the first time that's happened probably in a long-ass time. Uh, the Orioles won eight of their last 10 games. They went on a winning streak that reached 10 games uh, between uh, the last week's episode and this week's episode. Uh, so uh, I, I talked about all the, uh, you know, how the Orioles were approaching 500 last week. Well, the Orioles' win streak, uh, I mentioned just a minute ago, it reached 10 games in a row, which was their longest since 1999. That's what it was. 1999 was the last time the Orioles won 10 in a row. And uh, their record is 500 uh, at the All-Star break, which is the first time since September 9th of 2017 that Baltimore is 500 or better uh, past the halfway point of the season. So it's been five years since we've seen the Orioles at 500 or better uh, at the All-Star break, uh, which is a while. But that also means, uh, if you listen to the records, that all five of the teams in the AL East are at 500 or better, All right, which is the latest into a season by date that this has happened, where all the teams in the same division were at or over 500. So... Um, Pretty crazy, you know. Uh, obviously, all of those teams are not going to make the playoffs. Uh, it'll be interesting to see who does. There's a third wildcard team that's been added this year, so that that opens up the door for four teams in the AL East to potentially uh, make the playoffs, depending on how uh, the second-place teams finish in each of the other divisions. But uh, it is possible to have 
four teams from the same division in the playoffs this year. So keep an eye on that as we get into the second half of the season. The American League Central, the Minnesota Twins are up top there at 50 and 44. Uh, they have a two-game lead on the Cleveland Guardians, who are 46 and 44. Guardians won three in a row heading into the break. Uh, Chicago White Sox are sitting even par there at five, uh, 500 at 46 and 46. Uh, they did win seven out of their last 10 um, heading into the break. The Detroit Tigers are 37 and 55. Uh, the White Sox are three games back of the Twins, so certainly very catchable there. Uh, the Detroit Tigers are fourth at 37 and 55. They're 12 games back of the Twins. Uh, losers of four in a row at the break, and they only won twice in their previous 10 games uh, before the break. Kansas City Royals are 36 and 56. Uh, they're they're going to be probably it'll be between the Tigers and Royals for last place in the AL Central. Uh, at the end of the year. The American League West, all right, the Houston Astros, this is the third biggest division lead at the break. Uh, they're 59 and 32. They have a nine-game lead on the Seattle Mariners, okay? Now, the Mariners are 51 and 42. They have reached the All-Star break on a 14-game winning streak, all right, which is the first time that they've won at least 10 games in a row since 2002, and that 14-game winning streak leading into the All-Star break is the longest winning streak entering the All-Star break in Major League Baseball history. They've also entered the All-Star break having won 22 of their last 25 games, which is the most wins by a team in the MLB uh, in a 25-game stretch since 2017. So uh, the Mariners, you remember, if you go back to the uh, beginning of the season episode, I predicted that the American uh, or that the Mariners would be in the American League uh, Championship Series contention. I, I do believe that the Mariners are a legitimate possibility to win the American League in the playoffs uh, based on their rotation uh, and their lineup. And boy, has that been uh, really prevalent as of late. Uh, they might not lose again the rest of the year. Those Mariners, man, they're they're playing some damn good baseball. Uh, they're, they're nine games back of the Astros, but uh, the way that the Mariners are playing, they're certainly catchable. And the Mariners got to be feeling comfortable in that second spot in the AL West because the Texas Rangers, my Texas Rangers, are 41-49. and 49. They're third in the AL West, but they're 17 and a half games back of the Astros. They're actually eight and a half games back of the Mariners. So uh, the Mariners have an eight and a half game lead uh, on the Rangers for that second place spot, um, you know, but what's interesting about the Rangers, okay, Corey Seager, uh, all-star shortstop was in the home run derby. He had an RBI in eight straight games between, uh, this week and last week, uh, had an RBI in eight straight games, which included uh, a home run in five straight games. I know last week's episode, he had a homer in four straight games. Well, he went on to homer uh, the night that that episode was released to make it five games in a row with a home run. But the Rangers have actually scored 406 runs this year, uh, which is the most in the American League West, okay? Uh, they have the most runs scored in the entire division. The problem is, is their run differential for the season is minus one, all right? They've given up 407 runs, so uh, that math doesn't add up, which is why uh, they are eight games under 500 at the All-Star break. They lost their last four. They got swept by Seattle uh, in that series right before the All-Star break, and um, but, you know, the Rangers certainly, I don't think they're going to be in the mix for a playoff spot, but 
Um, yeah, keep an eye out for the Mariners. I was all over them in the preseason, and for the first uh, two and a half months of the season, they did nothing but let me down. <clears throat> and now look at them winning 14 in a row. So uh, Julio Rodriguez, that dude, I mentioned him last week. That dude is just simply incredible. Uh, if you watch the home run derby on Monday night, you got to see uh, just exactly why he is as good as he is. Uh, fourth place in the American League West is the Los Angeles Angels. They're 39-53, and 53, 20 and a half games back of the Astros. Uh, they lost their last three games before the break, only won twice in their ten final 10 games before the break. So uh, they're going the opposite direction. The bright spot for them would be Shohei Otani. Uh, Otani pitched a game last week in which he had 12 strikeouts, and he joined, uh, joined Nolan Ryan as the only Angels pitcher uh, to throw at least 10-plus strikeouts in four consecutive games. And, um, <clears throat> you know, again, Angels not a good team. They're not making the playoffs. They're firing Joe Madden and replacing him with Phil Nevin just simply hasn't worked out either. And, um, yeah, the Angels are going to be probably solidly in the fourth spot uh, the rest of the way. Um, the only team that they could realistically pass at this point would be the Rangers for third place in the division. Um, last place in the AL West, the Oakland A's, 32-61. and 61. They're the second worst team by record in all of baseball here at the All-Star break. So um, the AL West seems like uh, I could very well see the standings as they are right now being the final standings at the end of the season with Houston, Seattle, Texas, L.A. and Oakland uh, being how that sits. Now, uh, I, I don't see Seattle catching Houston, but it's certainly possible. Nine games to make up uh, is, is not not massive, and the way that they've been playing, I certainly believe that um, they have the capability to do that. But uh, I think Seattle uh, at this point is looking very, very good for one of those three wild card spots to uh, spoil the party of four AL East teams uh, in the playoffs. But nonetheless, like I said, we've made it to the All-Star break. We will have an All-Star game and Home Run Derby recap uh, in our Around the Island segment here in just a little bit. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island, and that's where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. That's very loaded Around the Island segment this week, particularly in the NHL and the MLB. Uh, but we're going to get you started out here in the National Football League. One Noteworthy NFL trade took place. The New England Patriots traded wide receiver Nikhil Harry to the Chicago Bears in exchange for a seventh round pick in 2024. All right, so that's two drafts from now, seventh round pick. That is not a lot for a former first round wide receiver. I think it was three years ago that the Patriots took Nikhil Harry at the very last pick of the first round, and uh, he just has fallen flat on his face there. In New England, uh, some of the other wide receivers to be taken after Nikhil Harry in that draft, I believe, uh, DK Metcalf, Debo Samuel, and Terry McLaurin. I'm pretty sure all three of those guys uh, went after Nikhil Harry in that draft, which just looks absolutely hilarious now. But uh, it's a good move for the Bears. I mean, they give up a seventh-round pick two years from now uh, to get a guy who could very well be their number one receiver. Um, with a change of scenery. I think the physical tools are still there for Harry, but uh, nonetheless, you pair him with Darnell Mooney and uh, Valus Jones, who they just drafted uh, in the draft this year. Uh, and uh, Nikhil Harry will fit right in there. Got a young quarterback in Justin Fields. So 
Um, it's looking, I guess that's that's a good move if you're the Bears. Uh, Patriots definitely got fleeced on that one. I mean, at least they got something for Harry, but you burn a first-round pick on a dude, you end up getting a seventh-round pick for it. That's not an even trade. Uh, we do have one retirement in the NFL. A longtime NFL corner, uh, Jason McCourty, he announced his retirement after 13 years in the NFL. Uh, Jason McCourty, uh, he was a sixth-round pick in 09 from University of Rutgers, and he played for the Titans, the Browns, and the Patriots, where he ended up winning a Super Bowl with his brother, Devin. Now, Devin's the more famous McCourty brother, but uh, I'd figured this was a McCourty name, is a name that most NFL fans recognize, so uh, Jason McCourty has retired. Big news out of the NFL is that training camps are officially underway, all right? The season has officially arrived. Now, obviously, we still have a ways to go before we play some games, but uh, the Las Vegas Raiders were the very first team to open training camp to all players instead of just rookies. Uh, so, But by this time next week, by next week's episode, uh, every training camp will be underway. All right, so all 32 teams will be uh, rocking and rolling in training camp, which is very exciting. You get to see... Uh, you get to see the full squad practice and see how it's looking. Those draft picks, you know, they did their rookie mini camps, but training camp is the real deal. That's where they ramp it up, and you can really start to see how your team is going to look. But since training camps are underway, uh, we can bring this interesting fact up that I found. The ticket prices for the NFL's game in Germany this year. Remember, they have five games uh, in Europe this year, and one of them is in Germany. And that features the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Seattle Seahawks, all right? Tickets just hit the general public market uh, this past week on Tuesday. There are already over 2 million buyers that have hopped into the queue to purchase seats for a stadium that only holds 75,000 people. So, I mean, this thing is essentially sold out already. Uh, The cheapest seats for this thing are around $600 U.S., and the most expensive seats topped out around $34,000, okay? Now, the only way I'm paying 600 bucks to go to a game is if it's a, you know, a playoff game per ticket that is. 600 per ticket to go to an NFL game is if it's a playoff game uh, or the freaking Super Bowl. Uh, and that's the cheapest ticket that you can find there in uh, in that game in Germany again, the Buccaneers against the Seahawks. So, uh, I just thought that was rather preposterous that that amount $34,000 uh I don't even think if you sat on the sidelines next to the team I don't think it would be worth $34,000 but uh moving over to the National Hockey League all right this has got a lot of uh we talked last week a few re-signings took place but this past week since the last episode the official free agency opened up so we've had uh, just a ton of signings I am going to rattle off a lot of names and a lot of numbers uh, so I'll try and keep it uh, as as quick as I can. Uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins, all right, they re-signed forward Evgeny Melkin, four years, $24.4 million. Uh, there were rumors that he was going to leave and test free agency, but he ended up staying for a little over $6 million per year. Uh, Penguins also signed defenseman Jan Ruda, three years, $8 million. Oh, He signed him uh, away from Tampa Bay. The New York Rangers made a pretty good signing fresh off of their Eastern Conference Finals appearance. They signed forward Vincent Trocek, seven years, $39.375 million. All right, he's locked in there in New York. That's a good good acquisition for the Rangers. Uh, depth up front. Uh, 
the Ottawa Senators, they uh, made a pretty big splash, of course, after they acquired uh, Alex Dabrinkit from the Chicago Blackhawks on the uh, NHL's draft night. Uh, they went ahead and signed forward Claude Giroux, three years, $19.5 million, and they also re-signed their young defenseman Josh Norris to an eight-year, $63 million deal. So Ottawa, with Dabrinkit in that lineup, looks like they, uh, they're they certainly not going to be a joke next year, uh, as they have been here in recent years. They're a young team, but uh, they got some good good talent added to the roster this offseason. The New Jersey Devils, they signed forward Andre Palat, five years, $30 million. Of course, Palat, two-time Stanley Cup winner with Tampa Bay the last several years. So uh, Palat goes to New Jersey. The St. Louis Blues, they re-signed forward Robert Thomas, former first-round pick, great young talent, eight years, $64 million, had a career high in points this year. They also signed defenseman Nick Letty, four years, $16 million, and he uh, had played for the, uh, the Blues previously, but it had been a while. The Edmonton Oilers, they re-signed forward Evander Kane uh, after a spectacular playoff performance by Kane, four years, $20.5 mil. They also signed goaltender Jack Campbell to a five-year, $25 million contract. Now, Campbell was the Toronto Maple Leafs goalie, had a career high in wins, save percentage, goals against this year. Terrific year for Campbell, so he gets rewarded. Uh, he will be Edmonton's starting goalie. Uh, since Jack Campbell left, the Toronto Maple Leafs, they, they went ahead and acquired Matt Murray last week during the NHL draft, but they also drafted uh, goalie uh, signed rather, they signed goalie Ilya Samsonov one year, one point eight million. That's kind of more of a prove it deal. Samsonov was, I think he's a former first round pick as well by Washington, but just hasn't panned out there. So the Maple Leafs are going to go with Matt Murray and Ilya Samsonov as their goalies this year. The Leafs also signed forward Callie Yarncroke four years, eight million, and then you have the Detroit Red Wings. They were by far the most active team the first two days of free agency. I mean, they pretty much signed uh, anybody with a pulse, but uh, they did have a few good signings in this. Uh, I'll spare you the numbers. I'll just tell you who they signed. Uh, They signed forward Andrew Kopp, uh, fresh off of a career-high 21 goals last year with Winnipeg. They signed forward David Perron, forward Dominique Kubelik, and then defensemen Olimata and Ben Sherratt. All right, so they signed five legitimate players who will fit into that lineup and, you know, be contributors this year. So you add that to um, a lineup that already features the Calder Trophy winning defenseman Moritz Sider and then some good young forwards up front with Dylan Larkin and Lucas Raymond. I think the Red Wings, Red Wings might be knocking on that playoff door this year. The Chicago Blackhawks, uh, they've been nothing but a fire sale the last couple weeks. They re- uh, they signed forwards Max Domi and Andreas Anthanasiu, both to one-year deals. The Washington Capitals, uh, they needed a goalie. They signed Darcy Kemper, five years, $26 million. He, was, of course, won the Stanley Cup with the Avalanche just a month ago. And uh, he got the money that a Stanley Cup winning goalie should get. So the Capitals have a new goalie. Speaking of those Avalanche, they have re-signed two guys that contributed to that Stanley Cup winning team. Defenseman Josh Manson and forward Arturi Lekkonen. Both of those guys signed um, four- and five-year deals. And then the Tampa Bay Lightning, they signed a trio of their 
I guess you could say core players at this point, uh, aside from your your franchise players like Stamkos, Hedman, Point, uh, some more important secondary players, I guess. All three of these guys got eight-year contracts. All right, defenseman Mikhail Sergachev, eight years, $68 million. Defenseman Eric Chernak, eight years, $41.6 million. And then forward Anthony Sorelli got eight years and $50 million. Now, I know the salary cap increased slightly. We talked about that. I think it was last week, maybe the week before. But I still don't know where the hell Tampa Bay is getting this money from. Tampa Bay is like the Los Angeles Rams of the NFL, or the NHL, rather. And they just they pull money out of nowhere. I mean, Stamkos, Hedman, and Point, um, those three guys probably contribute to at least a quarter of their salary. And Andre Vasilevsky, the goalie. Between those four guys, I guarantee you that's at least 25 to 30% of their salary cap just in those four guys. So I don't know where the hell Tampa Bay is getting this money, uh, but they just they, they seem to print money down there in Tampa just like they do over in Los Angeles with the Rams. But uh, nonetheless, uh, they get to keep those guys. The Tampa Bay also signed forward Vladislav Nemestikov to a one-year deal. Nemestikov was traded to the Dallas Stars uh, earlier this year at the trade deadline. Uh, he was previously drafted by Tampa Bay and played elsewhere for a few years including Dallas this past year, and uh, so he returns back to Tampa. The biggest signing uh, came to us from the Columbus Blue Jackets, believe it or not. They signed forward Johnny Goudreau, Johnny Hockey, seven years, $68 million. Uh, he was the prize free agent from Calgary. Uh, I feel like it's, it's a little over. It's about $9.5 million per year for Goudreau. Uh, he was offered... Uh, reports were between 10 and 12 million from uh, Calgary and New Jersey, uh, and he just chose not to to sign with either one of them. But um, if I'm Johnny Hockey, I'm not sure why I'm going to Columbus. Uh, he won't see the Stanley Cup. His chances of winning the Stanley Cup were much higher in Calgary uh, than they are in Columbus. But uh, to each their own. Uh, Blue Jackets also signed defenseman Eric Goodbranson for four years, 16 million. Uh, my Dallas Stars, they do have a pulse in this thing. Uh, they made a pretty good signing, a couple of them, actually. The first one was forward Mason Marchment, four years, $18 million, had a career-high 47 points in 51 games last year, almost a point per game, 18 goals out of that 51 uh, 47 points, rather. 18 goals for Marchment last year. He's a big six foot four, 210-pound winger. Uh, power forward. That's exactly who the Stars need. And uh, I think that at that cost, with that season that he had, just a fantastic signing. Uh, and the Stars also signed defenseman Colin Miller two years, uh, just shy of $4 million. So he's been more of a um, – he'll, he'll probably be a uh, third-pair defenseman, if I had to guess, maybe second-pair. But he's a good veteran defenseman that uh, – is capable of, of staying at home or moving the puck. So I think it was a good signing for the uh, the Stars. The uh, Vancouver Canucks, they signed forward Ilya Mekiev. He's a good, Rus- good young Russian forward, four years, almost $20 million. Uh, the Seattle Kraken, they were also pretty active. They signed forward Andre Burakovsky from the Avalanche. Um, had that overtime game-winning goal in the game one of the Stanley Cup Finals. They signed Burakovsky, five-year deal, had a career-high 61 points last year and played well in the playoffs. 
Kraken also signed defenseman Justin Schultz and goalie Martin Jones. All right, so they got a few veteran players in there to go with that good core group of young guys that they have. Uh, the Anaheim Ducks, actually, they signed a pair of uh, former New York Rangers. All right, uh, forward Ryan Strom got five years, $25 million. He had a career-high 21 goals last year. And the Ducks also signed forward Frank Vetrano, three years, almost $11 million. All right. The Calgary Flames, they re-signed defenseman Nikita Zadorov, two years, seven and a half mil. He's a big dude. He's six six, you know, two hundred and thirty pound defenseman. Really kind of kind of hurt the stars there in that series against them there in the first round. So he stays in Calgary. And then the Vegas Golden Knights, they re-signed forward Riley Smith, three years. 15 million. Those are just the notable free agent signings. We did have a few trades that went down uh, this in this last week or so. The Minnesota Wild, all right, after re-signing goalie Marc-Andre Fleury, that pissed off goalie Cam Talbot, and uh, Talbot basically asked for a trade. So they the Wild did trade Talbot to the Ottawa Senators in exchange for goalie Philip Gustafson. So Uh, basically a goalie-for-goalie trade there. Talbot was not happy. It wasn't going to be a pretty situation, so they just got rid of him. The New Jersey Devils traded forward Pavel Zaka to the Boston Bruins in exchange for forward Eric Halla. And then a couple of bigger trades that went down. The San Jose Sharks, they traded defenseman Brent Burns, former Norris Trophy-winning defenseman, uh, and a prospect to the Carolina Hurricanes in exchange for uh, two prospects and a third-round pick in next summer's draft. So kind of a cheap deal there for, for the Hurricanes to make to get Burns. Now, Burns is obviously uh, on the backside of his career, but uh, he still can be a very solid defenseman, veteran presence back there. And then the other one I thought was interesting was the Vegas Golden Knights. They traded forward Max Pacioretty and uh, Dylan Coughlin to the um, Carolina Hurricanes as well. Uh, in exchange for future considerations. So the Carolina Hurricanes making moves. Uh, they got Brent Burns and Max Pacioretty. That was a complete salary dump for the Golden Knights uh, to get rid of Pacioretty's contract, but um, they gave up quite a bit to get Max Pacioretty from Montreal, including sending him Ryan Suzuki. So uh, that trade just looks dumber and dumber uh, as we move along. And speaking of those Montreal Canadiens, they made an interesting trade themselves. They traded defenseman Jeff Petrie and forward Ryan Paling to the Pittsburgh Penguins in exchange for defenseman Mike Matheson and a fourth-round pick next summer. So, uh, interesting. Uh, Petrie's a good veteran defenseman. Paling is kind of an up-and-coming forward. Uh, hasn't quite reached the potential that they thought. I think he's a former first-round pick, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, interesting there that uh, Montreal got rid of both of those guys. Now, this trade has not happened yet, uh, but there are reports that Calgary Flames forward Matthew Kachuk is not going to re-sign in Calgary. Uh, That's pretty much the report, is that he's not re-signing in Calgary and that he is going to be traded before the season starts. And per The Athletic, which of course does uh, you know, news, sports news reporting, uh, the athletic listed the top five destinations for Matthew Kachuk in a trade. And those are the St. Louis blues, Florida Panthers, Vegas, golden Knights, Nashville predators, and my Dallas stars. Now you only, you notice four of those are Western conference teams. And the only one in the East is Florida. I would love 
for the Stars to get Matthew Kachuk. He uh, he was top five in the NHL in points this year, had over 100 points, um, and he's a good agitator, uh, but he also produces, and uh, those are the kind of guys you want on your team. Uh, I just don't know what it would take to get him, uh, probably quite a bit. So uh, keep an eye out, though, because Matthew Kachuk seems to be on his way out of Calgary. Switching gears over to the NBA for a quick note. Phoenix Suns center DeAndre Ayton, he had agreed to a four-year, $133 million max offer sheet with the Indiana Pacers, uh, but the Phoenix Suns had 48 hours to match that offer sheet since he was a restricted free agent, and the Suns ended up matching it uh, the next day. So DeAndre Ayton is going to be staying in Phoenix for four years and $133 million, okay? But we'll move over to Major League Baseball. Got a lot to get into here in the MLB. We had an all-star game. Uh, We just talked about the standings updates a little bit ago, but the all-star game has come and gone. So, too, has the Home Run Derby. The Home Run Derby was actually on Monday night uh, this past week, and it moved to a bracket style. I think they've been doing this for a couple years now. Uh, The bracket had four different matchups. They were seeded based, I think, on the the number of home runs at this point in the season. Uh, The number one seed was Kyle Schwarber. He got to face off against number eight seed Albert Pujols. All right, Schwarber represents the Phillies. Pujols represents the Cardinals. Uh, Number two seed was Pete Alonso of the New York Mets. He got to face Ronald Acuna Jr., the seventh seed from the Atlanta Braves. All right, Uh, third seed... Uh, Corey Seager of my Texas Rangers got to play the number six seed Julio Rodriguez of the Seattle Mariners. Number four seed Juan Soto of the Washington Nationals played the number five seed Jose Ramirez from the Cleveland Guardians. All right, so those were the matchups, and the winners moved on to play each other in the second round. So how this went, um, Julio Rodriguez beat Corey Seager, just had a massive first round, 32 home runs. Corey Seager hit 24, which was actually the second most uh, in the home run derby, but he played Julio Rodriguez, so he lost. So Julio Rodriguez won, uh, and he went on to face Pete Alonso, who who had beaten Ronald Acuna Jr. Uh, so Julio Rodriguez and Pete Alonso met in the second round. The other half of the bracket, uh, Albert Pujols ended up beating Kyle Schwarber, eight versus one upset there. And then Juan Soto beat Jose Ramirez uh, as in, in his matchup. So uh, you had a Albert Pujols versus Juan Soto and a Pete Alonso versus Julio Rodriguez semifinal matchup on both sides. And in those semifinal matchups, um, Juan Soto ended up beating Albert Pujols to advance to the final. And then Julio Rodriguez took care of Pete Alonso uh, to, to advance to the final. So that set up a final of Julio Rodriguez and Juan Soto. Both of these guys are super young. In fact, Julio Rodriguez, he's only 21 years old. He's the 14th rookie in Major League Baseball history to compete in the Home Run Derby. And... I mentioned Albert Pujols was a participant in this event. Julio Rodriguez was only three months and five days old when Albert Pujols made his Major League Baseball debut on April 2nd, 2001. All right, just simply incredible. 
Uh, and again, they just both participated in the same home run derby at the All-Star game. Now, Juan Soto ended up beating Julio Rodriguez in the final. Uh, I think Rodriguez went first, had like 18 home runs, uh, and then Juan Soto went second and beat that. So Juan Soto is your winner. Uh, he is the second youngest winner in home run derby history. He's only one day older than Juan Gonzalez when when Gonzalez won it back in 1993. Now, here's what I have an issue with. I get the bracket-style format of the Home Run Derby. It makes sense. It's easy, and there's no subjectivity to it. But here's the problem. Juan Soto won this thing by hitting 53 home runs in three rounds. Julio Rodriguez in his three rounds, hit 81 home runs and lost. So Rodriguez, he hit 18 more home runs than Soto and lost to Juan Soto in a head-to-head matchup because Julio had hit 32 home runs in the first round, 31 home runs in the second round, and then another, I think, 18 in the third round. Now, Rodriguez hit first all three times, so he didn't know how many home runs he needed. That's kind of the flaw about hitting first is you have to hit as many as you can because you don't know how many the the second guy is going to, you know, the second guy gets to basically see how many you hit and then try and beat that. But that's what I have an issue with is there needs to be some modification to the home run derby basically that allows, you know, the most home runs to win. Now, what that is, I'm not sure, but you can't have a home run derby in which one dude puts on an absolute show with 81 home runs in three rounds, uh, and then a dude that has 53 home runs beat that dude to claim the home run derby title. Uh, that just doesn't make sense. Uh, if anybody anybody that watched the home run derby could see that Julio Rodriguez was actually the winner of that thing. But uh, Soto did win a million bucks for winning the derby, and Julio Rodriguez won 750000 for finishing second. Interestingly enough, Julio Rodriguez's base salary, since he's a rookie this year, is 700000 for the entire season with the Seattle Mariners. So uh, he's act- he made more money. He made fifty grand more in the Home Run Derby uh, than his entire base salary uh, for the entire season. So uh, that's just interesting to note there. So uh, Soto was your Home Run Derby champ. Then came the All-Star Game on Tuesday night. It was in uh, at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. It was the third time that the Dodgers have hosted the All-Star Game. It was the first time in 42 years that the All-Star Game has been in Los Angeles. And the American League came into this thing on an eight-game winning streak. All right, just simply incredible. National League has not won in a long time. Uh, but they did come out guns blazing. Uh, the the uh, National League got two first-inning runs, one of which was a home run from Paul Goldschmidt off of Shane McClanahan. Uh, who is Major League Baseball's ERA leader. So uh, oddly enough, like I said, um, you know, the, the National League's first two runs came in the top of the first inning against baseball's ERA leader, all right? And that two-run lead was actually the largest lead for the National League since the 2012 All-Star game, all right? That's had been a, almost had been 10 years since the National League had a lead of two runs or more. Uh, but then the American League came alive in the fourth inning. You know, they had a back-to-back home runs in the fourth inning from Giancarlo Stanton and Byron Buxton to put them up 3-2. to two. Stanton's homer was a two-run shot. Buxton was the next batter, and he went yard as well. So 
The American League was up 3-2 to two after 4, and that was all she wrote for the scoring, believe it or not, as the pitching kind of took over from there. The American League won the game 3-2 to two for their ninth consecutive victory in the All-Star game, which is actually the second longest streak in All-Star game history. Okay, And then New York Yankees outfielder Giancarlo Stanton, he won the MVP award uh, for hitting that two-run home run in the fourth to tie the game at two. Uh, Stanton, and I thought this was interesting, Giancarlo Stanton is only the third New York Yankee to win an All-Star Game MVP award. I would have figured it would have been way more, but the other two to do that were Derek Jeter in 2000 and Mariano Rivera in 2013. So the Yankees have only had three All-Star Game MVPs. That just, it seems like there would be more, but uh, nonetheless, that was it. Your winning pitcher was Houston Astros pitcher Framber Valdez. Losing pitcher, Tony Gonsolin of the Los Angeles Dodgers, which ironically enough, Gonsolin is 11-0 this year in the season. So Gonsolin has not been the losing pitcher in any game this year. He's 11-0, but he did lose the All-Star game. He gave up those three runs there in the fourth. And then the save was credited to Emmanuel Classe from the Cleveland Guardians. A terrific uh, three-strikeout inning for him. Um... The All-Star, I just need to mention this. The All-Star game itself was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it was on Fox. The announcers did a great job. The presentation was spectacular. Uh, they had a bunch of guys wearing microphones in the field. Uh, of course, we've seen outfielders with microphones before on ESPN. Fox did that as well, but they took it to a whole new level. They had microphones on the pitchers while they were pitching and talking to them in their ear in between pitches. And the, the pitchers were you know, communicating back to them and were actually kind of funny. They also had one on a on a batter, too. I think Jose Trevino, the Yankees catcher, uh, when he was at bat, they were talking to him on a microphone. Of course, they had the earpieces in. But I just thought it was very cool to hear that. You know, uh, that's not something you get to hear or see very often. But uh, it made it more interesting, honestly. I mean, the All-Star game, you know, it's kind of a dog and pony show to some extent. Not 100% effort on both sides but um it was it was fun to watch it was a good game it was close and then the presentation with the the mic'd up players left and right uh, I thought that was very cool and very fun so that was a job well done by Fox and Major League Baseball Uh, another baseball nugget is that the Major League Baseball draft started this past weekend first round was on Sunday night And it was actually, I'm not going to recap a whole lot, but the first time in Major League Baseball history that the sons of former Major League Baseball players were selected with the first two picks of the draft. Okay, the Baltimore Orioles, uh, they drafted shortstop Jackson Holliday, who is a high school shortstop from Stillwater, Oklahoma. And uh, his dad is Matt Holliday, former St. Louis Cardinal, Colorado Rocky. And then uh, second overall pick was Drew Jones. That he Arizona Diamondbacks took Drew Jones second overall. His dad, of course, is uh, five-time All-Star Andrew Jones, the Atlanta Braves outfielder. Uh, so f- sons of former Major League Baseball players went number one and two overall. So pretty interesting note there. Um, Holiday, though, Jackson Holiday joined Ken Griffey Jr. as the only sons of former Major League Baseball players to be drafted number one overall. So, uh, pretty cool piece of history there for 
Matt and Jackson Holiday. And then I have to give this shout-out. Uh, the 14th overall pick of the Major League Baseball draft belonged to the New York Mets. And they selected a high school shortstop by the name of Jet Williams. He is the pride of Rockwall Heath High School in Heath, Texas, which is right up the street from my house. I, I live about 10 minutes from Rockwall Heath High School, so he's a local kid. I have seen him play in person. He is absolutely terrific, and uh, I wish nothing but the best for Jet Williams as he now begins his professional career. So shout out to the Rockwall Heath Hawks and their baseball program there. Uh, but some other pieces of NFL news, the Toronto Blue Jays, they fired manager Charlie Montoyo. This took place right before the All-Star break. Uh, they named bench coach John Snyder the interim manager for the rest of this year. But uh, the Blue Jays, they're in third place in the AL East. They've been struggling a bit, though, despite um, having five All-Stars in that game uh, the other night. Uh, in his four-plus seasons in Toronto, Charlie Montoyo was 236 and 236, so an even 500 record. Uh, but at the time of his firing, uh, Toronto was 3-9 and nine, uh, in the month of July when Montoyo got fired. So uh, they're hoping that uh, maybe a new manager after the All-Star break will propel them up. Uh, they're not catching the Yankees, but uh, I do believe that the Blue Jays are a, a playoff team, as I've mentioned. Now, this is a weird kind of development out of Washington. Uh, the Nationals outfielder Juan Soto just talked about him winning the home run derby. He's due for a contract extension, and he has reportedly turned down a 15-year, $440 million contract. Uh, you heard that right. He denied, rejected a 15-year, $440 million contract. That's about $30 million per season for the next 15 years. And Soto said, nope, I'm good, thanks. Uh, so he clearly uh, is going to test the market. The Nationals, they've now come out and said that they're willing to listen to trade offers for Juan Soto, uh, but it's clear that he wants no part of D.C. And um, keep an eye on that. Um, he's one of the best young players in the game, obviously, and uh, he's going to demand a king's ransom from the Nationals if he's traded. And uh, whatever team acquires him is going to have to pay him more than $440 million over the next four, uh, 15 years because that's what he just said no to in D.C. So, oh boy, keep an eye on that. Um, and then the final piece of Major League Baseball news uh, is the fact that Major League Baseball announced that they are moving forward with plans uh, for advertising on uniforms next season. I talked about this uh, a while back. don't remember how many episodes, but it's been a while. Uh, but the new labor contract allows teams to add uniform and helmet advertising patches and decals uh, starting next year. All right, And back in April, the San Diego Padres were the first team to announce a sponsorship deal for next year uh, going with Motorola, All right, the uh, communication company. So just something to keep an eye on uh, next year. We'll uh, zip over real quick to the PGA Tour. Uh, longtime NBC golf analyst David Faraday. You, if you watch golf, you know who David Faraday is. He is actually leaving NBC and joining the LIV Golf Series, or Live Golf Series as it's called. Now, Faraday, of course, he's well known for his unique style and his uh, personalities from 
uh, Great Britain. I don't know if it's Scotland or England, but he's from somewhere over there. He's been a regular on the NBC Golf telecast as well as the Golf Channel uh, since 2015. So he's been one of the main voices of, of golf on NBC for the last seven years. And uh, he is leaving the PGA Tour and heading over to the Live Tour for eight to ten tournaments annually is what the what his contractual obligation is. Um, we've heard, obviously, several golfers jump ship. I've mentioned a lot of them. Henrik Stenson was another one that just jumped over this week, leaving the PGA Tour for Live. But uh, David Faraday is the first actual broadcaster to do so. So I thought that was interesting to note, especially if you... Uh, do like golf and watch golf. Um, David Faraday is moving over to the Live Golf Series. Last piece of information here for you in Around the Island is related to college football. Uh, I mentioned, I believe it was last week, uh, the Pac-12 and the Big 12 kind of maybe merging together to form a, uh, a another super conference that we're seeing. Uh, well, those talks between the Pac-12 and the Big 12 about uh, joining for a partnership, they've officially ended. Okay, That will not be happening. Uh, both sides have said there's no longer interest in a partnership. Now, a Big 12 source has come out and said that the deal didn't work for, quote, a multitude of reasons, all right? But he did cite the lack of revenue as the main contributing factor, okay? And then also the Big 12, their media rights cannot be negotiated until 2024, uh, which is a reason that Texas and OU aren't technically supposed to leave the Big 12 for the SEC until 2025 because of those media obligations through 24. So uh, that was another contributing factor. But uh, this doesn't eliminate the possibility of the Pac-12 adding, um, or the Big 12 adding some Pac-12 teams, as we've talked about. M- mentioned last week, the Big 12 has their eye on at least four Pac-12 teams. That doesn't prevent this from happening. It's just uh, simply the merger between the Pac-12 and the Big 12 joining together as one conference. That will not be happening, at least as of this moment. But uh, if the Big 12 adds four Pac-12 teams, the Pac-12 may come knocking on their door uh, with another offer. So uh, keep an eye on that. Uh, But that is going to wrap up the 84th episode of the Sports Island podcast. It was a lot to get into this week, a lot of stuff going on. It was a great week in sports Uh, this weekend. uh, Not quite as exciting. Uh, We do have a a good PGA Tour tournament. Baseball is getting resumed here this week after the All-Star break, so there is uh, plenty of stuff to watch. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the NFL training camps are underway, so I'm sure parts of that will be televised uh, where you're at locally. So uh, keep an eye on that, and uh, we'll look forward and touch base on uh, plenty more topics on next week's episode. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook, at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.